Operator, I have an incoming transmission from Mr. Luna. Operator. Please confirm. I am detecting additional life forms here in the lair. Operator, please confirm. Please confirm. Playing transmission. Crime is sometimes defined as a grave offense, especially against morality. This definition is one I like as it's subjective. It allows us to debate outside of the rigid rules and sticking points of law books, books that are often studied in an effort to discover loopholes or flat-out weaknesses in our justice systems, books that will make it difficult to use our common sense because of their demand for events to be seen as black or white. No gray area welcome. And if any seeps in under the courtroom door, we soon bleach or scribble dark ink over these outliers to clear things up. When we speak of a grave offense against morality, we speak of what is considered to be unquestionably wrong. Murder, rape, thievery. Thievery is an interesting blanket. It covers everything from theft of another's child to theft of another's privacy or belongings. But what about theft of free will? And what of that despicable transaction occurring between separate species? Is it a crime for a toddler to place a grasshopper spider and a handful of ants in a jar to see what happens? Or for a wolf to be transformed into a pet over generations of crossbreeding and environmental adjustment? On some level, I suppose it is. Well, then it's criminal to have zoos, aquariums, even pets, if you think long and hard enough on the dilemma. Much of what we do that is a grave offense against morality goes overlooked, as we all take part in it. We all dissect one another from a distance to make ourselves feel superior. The ones who eat meat, the ones who eat plants. The believers in afterlife, the believers in present life. The ones proud to be rich as it defines their lives and... Those proud to be poor as it defines their lives. It is a silly game we play here. Ford. Dodge. Something that if looked at objectively, like from the perspective of the universe, is quite silly. Meaningless. As meaningless as a salmon's run to spawn is to the hungry pregnant belly of an angler's wife. We all live steeped in immorality. We are all, at the end of the day absolutely full of shit. We don't know what we're doing here. We are just doing. And I have a sneaking suspicion that if there is anything out there, a fleet of galactic fishermen perhaps, trolling space for a promising spot to drop a line, then they likely don't see it as a crime to yank us from our environment for study. They likely see it as nature, as something to do. And if these distant cousins of ours, maybe even fathers, of ours. Heavenly fathers of ours, hmm, are ever outright revealed to exist. They will scoff at our labels of morality and criminality, and we will finally know how it feels to be without hope for justice, how it feels to be at the mercy of a superior, a god. We will simply be forced to conform, domesticate to their preference. You'll have to excuse all of that. I blanked out a little there. But it will do. There is always some truth in these free forms of thought to be collected, 
From a trance sometimes emerges the heart of an issue. But like with the fog that follows dreams, it is easy to let that heart disease morph from a worthwhile sticking point into an unintelligible jumble of words. The point floats away as the day demands attention for the things that matter. The big picture, it seems, is rarely worth our time and only earns our focus when we're not focused. The story of Betty and Barney Hill is worth our time as they were of the first to step forward with an alien abduction story. Something that fits my criteria of a crime. Something that may evoke trance-like thought in your day. The paint of the big picture. They weren't backwoods yokels or attention-starved teenagers. They were a biracial married couple in an uneasy era to be so. They were well-respected, seemingly sensible people who were unwillingly thrust into a spotlight upon sharing their alleged encounter with extraterrestrial beings. And whether you believe such a thing is possible or not, it is difficult to ignore the voice of Barney Hill, under hypnosis, recovering the most terrifying experience of his life. What can't be denied is that the Hills believe something had happened to them, something that without doubt could be considered a grave offense against morality. A crime. It's out of a circle. And I think only a jet could fly that fast. And I am hoping I can find a good place where I can stop and really see this thing, whatever it is. And I see a wigwam and I recognize this place. And I feel safe. I feel blessed in the barren hostility. What is this place? What is area? What is this place? It is Indian Head. I had been there before, and I feel comforted that I see them. A familiar place, and I think I will get a good look at this because Betty was very annoying. She was annoying by telling me look, and I can't look. I have to drive the car. I want to wake up. You're not going to wake up. You're in deep sleep. You're comfortable. Relaxed. This is not going to trouble you. Go on. You can remember everything now. It's right over my right. God. What is it? And I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. God, I'm scared. It's all right. You can go right on. Experience it. It will not hurt you now. 
I got to get my gun. Transmission. Welcome to Crime Machine, episode 006. vacation. Well, a honeymoon is what it was meant to be, but the two of them have been so busy with work and arranging to move in with one another since they made their vows that it seems silly to call it a honeymoon at this point. A romantic getaway, then. One that the two hard-working and dedicated civil servants are long overdue to enjoy together at this point of their logistically challenged relationship that is just now beginning to smooth out, thanks to the drive of their mutual love for one another. Betty works long hours as a social worker, and Barney, a military vet, has spent his time since the service delivering and, as of late, sorting mail on a graveyard shift. He has taken on this grueling new position in Boston to be closer to his new bride. As the commutes between New Hampshire and Philadelphia are beginning to take a toll, Barney being from Philly and Betty a New Hampshireite, or Granite Slater as some prefer, are just now beginning to settle into the regular routines of marriage, which should, and now for the hills, finally do include sharing a bed and occasionally a meal together. It is a complete treat when the two of them see a window of time wherein they can spend an extended period just being a happy couple. So on this day in mid-September of 1961, the two decide to jump through one of these rare panes of glass and hastily pack bags for a spur of the moment. What do we call it? Romantic getaway. It isn't long before the Hills and their little dog, Delcy, are zooming away in their blue and white 57 Chev Bel Air, zooming away from their seacoast home and constant responsibilities in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Barney, a black man, and Betty, a white woman, are not your typical married couple of the time. Barney has ties to the civil rights movement, and when he's not working 60-hour weeks with the Postal Service... Much of his spare time is spent with Betty attending meetings and demonstrations tied to a cause that is, to them, vital. The two mentally unwind as the trees begin to crowd in, seeming to cheer them on at roadside. And before long, the hills are crossing the border into Canada. Easy as pie. Hopping and go, they say. Well, that is just what the hills did. It would have been simple enough to close the blinds and only emerge to walk Dalcy there, precious dachshund who is currently enjoying her first Canadian territory marking in a place named Montreal. It's always simpler, easier to stand still, but the rewards of moving are without fail far greater. The vacation soon evaporates in the smells of restaurants, the mists of Niagara Falls, the smoke twirling about the contented couple's heads from post-coital cigarettes. Nah, that's how it should have been. 
Barney took a wrong turn after failing to comprehend directions given by a Frenchman at a gas pump, and on the evening of September 19th, Betty, Barney, and Delcy crossed back into the U.S., tired and annoyed, and began a rather daunting trek along Route 3 into New Hampshire's White Shell Mountains. Daunting because the radio man has said that a hurricane is rolling in back home, and now they're in a race to beat it to landfall. Daunting because it is full dark, though the moon is bright, and the stars are near cleanly blanketed above, save a few clouds. Daunting, because in 1961, a breakdown in these parts could mean a cold night in a cold car waiting at the moon's frigid guard. The trees, which seem friendly on the way out, appear to intimidate the Bel Air on the way back in. The headlamps illuminate what could be rows of husky men with traditional sensibilities, standing menacingly at roadside daring the biracial couple to make a pit stop. Barney has a gun, and he checks to be sure it's at the ready before braving this last stretch of the trip. They will be home by midnight, and really, truly, there is nothing to fear out here. It's in his head, and Barney dislikes anything that's not his own to live there. He lights a cigarette and starts up a conversation with his wife, putting his imagination firmly in check then accelerates through the first of the crowding trees that no longer appear to be men approaching, that are now just trees. Trees crowding around a roadside to welcome them home. And as the darkness of the wood consumes the Bel Air's taillights, an unidentified flying object emerges from the clouds, then seems to slingshot itself from thin air, out above the tree line, in hot pursuit of the hills. There is a light in the sky that Betty has been observing for a while now. It's strange how it moves, as if it's playing a game of cat and mouse with them. She doesn't want to look silly by mentioning it to Barney. It's a certainty that he will ridicule her for being concerned about what she immediately fears to be a UFO following them from the sky. But as the light seems to peek out from behind a mountaintop, then pull itself at unnatural speeds across the sky to get a better vantage point of them, perhaps. Betty can't help herself. She tells Barney that he has to take a look at this light that is following them, following them from the sky. Predictably, her husband is annoyed by this bit of news. It's disconcerting enough out here without having to be spooked not only by what could be in the woods, but in the clouds as well. He continues driving and Betty begins to show an increasing boldness in how she observes whatever it is that's apparently chasing them. He tries to ignore this, waits patiently for his wife to concede that what she's seeing is a star or an airplane, but the relief never comes. The anxiety only intensifies. The dog is affected now, and the little whimpers that are beginning to rise from the back seat are enough of an excuse, Barney decides, to pull over and debunk this silly light with a glance through his binoculars while Delcy relieves herself. Come on, Pop. Outside, the fall air is crisp, but dead in a way that makes one feel dead themselves. Barney looks to the sky and sees the light. It is about 300 feet away and maybe 75 feet up in the sky. Too low to be an airplane. Too large to be a star. Barney brings his binoculars to his eyes and feels a sense of peace wash over him. What he sees should scare him. But it's as if the light is communicating that all is well. 
that he should stay put, that they will come for him. They. There are people in the windows of what appears to be a pancake-shaped aircraft. How does it hover so? The people are not people at all. Maybe. But what else would they be? Is this an invasion? Are they Germans? They scuttle about like the Nazis do. Militant. Around a dozen figures dressed in metallic black suits. They are in a control room. One figure stands stock still, observing Barney just as intently as Barney observes it. Don't move. Don't move. Stay where you are. Stay where you are. The voice is in his head, he realizes, though it must have come from some sort of speaker. There is no sound from the aircraft, and with this observation, Barney dreamily asks himself, Why is there no engine noise? He begs his ears to pick up some indication that this is a familiar vehicle in an unfamiliar form, some type of advanced helicopter with a control room, a cockpit, the size of the viewing area at the CN Tower in Toronto they had seen photos of. One of the men looks over his shoulder at Barney. They lock eyes. He reminds Barney of a red-headed Irishman, the type who normally are not so pleased to see a black man. But this man, no, these aren't men, Barney thinks. Can't be, men don't fly around in silent ships studying motorists from viewing rooms. This being, then, is nice. Barney is calm. He feels near love for the friendly face, the same way he feels endeared to any Irishman who doesn't scowl at him. It's nice to be surprised by people. Fear finally arrives in a wave as the aircraft makes its decision, seeming to move out, then back in like a ball, Barney thinks. A ball on a string, swatted out by a paddle, you know, like a child's toy. It's unnatural. Betty, we gotta go! They are traveling at a great speed in the Bel Air. Barney is back behind the wheel somehow, and he is cackling, cackling like a madman from a late-night horror flick dog is safely aboard. Time is beginning to hiccup, it seems. Betty has her head out the window. She's giving a play-by-play of the craft's behavior, her panic completely uncontained, on full display. There are some sort of extensions coming up from the sides of the craft now. They have red lights on them. Maybe some means of communication that has been initiated. Barney wants to tell her to shut up, to calm down. He can't think under these conditions. He needs control in some form to be able to begin to analyze this circumstance objectively. Then his wife is silent. It is gone, Betty decides, for now, and pulls her head in. The hills drive on for a bit in stunned silence. The trees now undoubtedly here as protectors, cover from whatever it is that's pursuing them. Ah, they're just trees, for God's sakes, Barney thinks. The stuff of reality, solid, familiar. Nothing malicious about them. No voice that seems to emit from their collective with simple requests that feel like unsprung traps. That's it. That's what's happening, Barney thinks. The hills are being hunted. The couple yelp along with their dog when the car begins to vibrate. Something is pounding on the trunk. 
There are beeps and boops, the irritating din of high frequency, a sense that they are about to be dematerialized. Betty wishes she knew Morse code suddenly. Barney is pounding on the accelerator to no avail. They are in cruise control, though the vehicle is without the option. And then, Barney is calmly turning the car down a side road for some reason. He spots a wigwam and feels contented. Indian Head, he thinks. They are at Indian Head. Close to home now. Familiar, this place. Every occupant of the Bel Air seems to be dazed now, including the dog, Delcy, who spins a few rotations, then lays contented herself under the driver's seat. Her spot. The hills are drifting away, drifting away into the deep recesses of their own minds as they slowly cross an old, near-forgotten steel bridge and approach a large ball of light that seems to wait for them out in these woods. On this dirt road... There is a roadblock of some kind here, and now men are approaching. An odd-looking group. Like a pack of bipedal wolves. Shaved and smooth, though. Gray skins, snoutless. Deep black eyes oozing from slits. Creatures, really. In people suits. Imposters. In ill-fitting clothes that look like overproduced imitations of the time's fashion. Barney wants his gun, then immediately does not. A voice in his mind is massaging away all panic. Betty wants answers. The car doors click open of their own volition, and the view of the harrowing scene before them shuts off, as if heavily fleshed lids have come together over the eye of the windshield. The hills are weightless. The hills are well. They are driving again, and miles down the road, it seems, back on course for home, but hours into the future, though they won't become aware of this detail until they observe an ungodly hour upon the face of their living room clock. Both Betty and Barney's watches, like their shared love for long drives in the country, are now forever dead. The last leg of the trip flies by in stunned silence, and at last the Bel Air rolls to a stop on the gravel of the couple's Portsmouth driveway. Dry gravel. They have beaten the storm, but the hills don't comment on this, don't care of this. They exit the vehicle and silently approach their home. The only words spoken are by Betty, who suggests they leave what they can of their clothing and belongings out on the porch. Barney doesn't question this only nods his reluctant understanding. Something had happened. Something neither of them have the energy or the impulse to speak of for the time being. Barney slips off his shoes and notices they are badly scuffed at the toes, as if he dragged them for miles through gravel. A memory threatens to rise up and he drops the shoes. He sees himself floating through the woods for a split second but his mind clamps shut as a deep sense of debilitating fright threatens to overwhelm him. Barney is relieved, yet a little surprised, by how easily the memory and the accompanying fear is quelled. As if it peeked out by accident, then fled back to hiding, rather than being momentarily retrieved and shooed away. It's unsettling to think he may be keeping secrets from himself. 
Betty is fumbling with the back of her dress. It is torn around the zipper, and she is quite puzzled by this. She has a bellyache. The hills leave as much of what they're wearing on the porch as they can, then follow a strangely subdued Delcy inside. Tomorrow, they will make sense of this. But for now, sleep. There will be nightmares that chase the hills now. Betty speaks of them, writes them down. They're all the same. The trip home, the light, the chase, the screaming at Barney, scariest of all, Barney screaming back. So unlike him. She's in a blue-tinted examination room. Barney is in another. They are being studied. By aliens. Gray men dressed in metallic black suits. There is a leader. And there is an examiner. Then there is... Well, there's confusion. Then the trip home, the chase. She's screaming at Barney. Barney's screaming back. The light. A map of stars. Wake up. Wake up. Barney isn't well. She can see that he is being eaten alive. This whole thing is easier for Betty somehow. She's more open-minded, maybe. They will seek professional help, but for now it's best to rest. To digest all of this. They each draw what they remember seeing. The depictions of the craft are identical. They study their clothing. Some kind of pinkish powder on Betty's dress. The rip around the zipper. Barney's good shoes are ruined. Deep scar marks on the toes. The neck strap from his binoculars is snapped. Delcy, their dog, seems disturbed. She is running in her sleep. Not uncommon for a dog to do, sure, but she is sprinting in her sleep. And now she has some kind of fungal infection. Maybe they should have showered the dog as thoroughly as they'd washed themselves. They'd both felt so filthy upon returning home. Betty can't stop thinking about the spot she'd noticed on the trunk of the Bel Air. She is compelled to take a compass out to them, has a feeling of what will happen. And when it does, after she lays the compass on one of the polished circular spots and the needle goes a-spinning, her mind goes a-spinning as well. As if on cue the rains finally come down now from that seemingly forever ago approaching storm that had sent her and Barney rushing home from Canada. And Betty is glad for its arrival. Glad when the thunder begins to boom from the sky, as it may serve to cover the scream she could feel building in her chest. A scream wound up with every spin of the compass's needle. A scream that in the end lays as dead and busted in her throat as her watch does on her wrist. This is ridiculous. The Hills can't do this alone. For as much as Betty agrees with Barney that they will likely be looked at as foolish for sharing their experience, she knows they need to do something. Barney is a nervous wreck. He turned around at a roadblock the other day and came home. Had to call in sick over a simple bit of construction. Just couldn't bring himself to go through it. The Hills are both of the mind that something is watching them or at least convinced that they both are suffering from paranoia as a result of whatever happened to them out there in the White Mountains. They confide in their church minister, and to their surprise, he takes their accounts seriously. He knows them well, has never seen them behave this way, 
And in fact, he has ties in this new field. He believes them. And soon Betty and Barney find themselves invited to a dinner where high-ranking military men are in attendance, along with a hypnotist who seems quick to believe he or one of his colleagues can help the couple unlock their trauma. It is incredible how accepting everyone is of their story, but the Hills have a sneaking suspicion that they are being examined, prodded to ascertain why they would make up such a tale, and it soon becomes obvious that they have passed some sort of test. They are referred to a one Dr. Benjamin Simon, a leader in the field of hypnosis, and a man with an impeccable reputation for getting to the bottom of trauma and those returning from the field of battle. He is enthusiastic about the hills. This is the first claim of alien abduction, mind you. The waters of the subject had not yet been chummed murky with claims from every half-wit cranking their neck at a weather balloon or newfangled satellite. Dr. Simon assumes he has a couple in the hills who indeed encountered some sort of extremely traumatic situation on their way through the woods, and they have disguised it with this fantastic story. He believes the dreams Betty Hill has been experiencing are the basis for the surely fabricated story they tell so convincingly. Something happened out there in the White Shell Mountains to the hills. Something that will likely prove to be so terrible that these claims of a spaceship, of a possible abduction by extraterrestrials, will make all the sense in the world in due time. They are told to take day trips back to where they believe they interacted with the UFO. It may jog their memories. Barney can't stand the thought, but Betty soon convinces him, and it works. They begin to feel as though maybe the whole thing had just been a dream, that they had been exhausted, and Betty's dreams had influenced Barney in some way. Maybe they'd been attacked out there by some men in the road. Maybe the attack had been so traumatic that they had both stuffed it away in the backs of their minds. Maybe they could put this whole strange episode behind them with a little professional help. They are in optimistic spirits when they return home after one of these purifying drives into the mountains and soon before they are scheduled to go under the spell of Dr. Simon. When they enter their home, speaking of dinner plans, they find something already waiting for them on the kitchen table. A pile of dead leaves. And within this odd display, a pair of blue earrings belonging to Betty that she had been wearing the night of the strange light that she had completely forgotten about, along with whatever else had happened to her and Barney back in late September. We're driving along. I don't know where we are. I don't even know how we got here.
It's all right now. You're safe here. Tell me about the men on the road. The men on the road approach and the Bel Air stalls out. Next, they are on a walking trail. Betty is surrounded by short gray men with large chest cavities, large eyes, aliens, extraterrestrials, no doubt about it. She must be dreaming. She screams when Barney comes into view. He is up ahead and floating. His feet drag and bump along the dirt and rocks the path. Betty is furious. She thinks to fight with her captors, but they have a way about them. They seem to defuse her with just a glance, with a touch of her arm. Up ahead, Barney continues floating along like a parade balloon. And beyond this strange scene, under the glow of a near full moon, Betty spots the ship. It is parked. There is a ramp opened up. It is obvious somehow to her that this is the rear of the vessel. A sizable thing as large as her house. It is shaped like, well, it is shaped like a UFO. A dull metallic pancake. They are up the ramp. Inside, it is cooler than the night air. Betty is led to a room with an examining table. Barney is separated from her. It is clear that a flurry of activity has ensued as she is led into a bluish light. A man, a being, greets her in English through an odd accent. The rest communicate with a strange humming sound. She is terrified, yet calm somehow. The leader, as both Betty and Barney will later come to identify him, assures Betty she won't be harmed. They want to run some tests, then they will be on their way. She has no choice. Another being, the examiner, as he'll later be known by the hills, enters the room and immediately gets to work. He is not friendly. He is cold and different. He scrapes Betty's skin, digs under her nails, looks into her throat. He then fumbles with her dress, yanking uselessly at the zipper. He rips the dress and Betty thaws from her frozen state to assist him. Once naked, she lies on the table, her legs dangling slightly over the edge even though she is a petite woman. Her spine is studied, her bones. The examiner runs an instrument with metal needles at its head, all over her skeletal structure. There is no pain, just dull fear. The leader is keeping her calm with his presence, she realizes, and is distantly grateful. This could be much worse. They could be dismantling her alive if they liked, but this is gentle. The examiner pulls out a large needle and Betty asks what it is for. It is communicated to her it is some sort of pregnancy test. She is shifted onto her back and without warning has the needle plunged deep into her navel. The pain is fire. It's white heat. It is unbearable. The leader, confused by this reaction, rushes to her side and waves a hand over her head. And then, there is only peace. Peace in the bluish light of the room sweeping over her in waves. She is everything and nothing all at once. Meanwhile, Barney is getting the full meal deal. He, like Betty, has been stripped naked. He, also like Betty, can't seem to find the strength to fight. 
He knows on some deep instinctual level that he must comply. It is not his choice. There is a small tube inserted in his anus. Not painful, not prolonged. It's in and out, like a futuristic time card. Now on to his genitals. Some kind of cup is placed over them and a thick fluid goes to work. It is quick, though not comfortable. He will suffer from harmless but cosmetically disturbing bumps later that will have to be excised from his peri area. His skeleton is studied, his skin scraped, his toenails clipped. The examiner counts his teeth, yanks on them, and then for the first time shows something that resembles emotion. The beings crowd around, humming in odd tones, excited maybe, as the examiner removes Barney's dentures. It is incredible that after all that has happened, Barney Hill feels embarrassment. The falsies are a closely guarded secret, the result of having been injured in the war. And moments later, to his amazement, he can hear Betty laughing. She's laughing as she explains what they are. And soon his teeth are returned. Then he is returned to the Bel Air, where Delcy still lays still under his seat. Betty is beside him. She is smiling. She has had the most wonderful conversation with the leader. He has shared a star map with her, the location of his home, and she remembers it vividly. Remembers it now under Dr. Simon's hypnosis. And now Barney is smiling. The hills are grinning at each other. All of their trauma now melted away. Crime Machine is a new breed of true crime podcast researched, written, and narrated by Jack Luna and produced by me, The Operator. Subscribe to Crime Machine wherever you consume your podcasts and remember to tell everyone what you heard here today. Do you love us or wanting to hear more Crime Machine than everyone else? You can support Crime Machine on Patreon. Become a member by searching for Crime Machine on Patreon or by going to patreon.com or slash Crime Machine.